If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Will you bow your heads with me? We got nothing accomplished, Holy One, and it took all day long to do it. The baby insisted on being held, especially while she slept. The email, the essay, the memo, all are still in draft form because there wasn't a complete thought to be found in a 10-mile radius around the laptop. School was an utter disaster. One assignment was lost, another had to be redone, and a third, well, let's just say the instructions were less than clear. The sink is full of dishes for the fourth time since breakfast. Then there was the gaslighting. We knew we shouldn't have responded, but he's just gotten away with so much already. Nothing was made right, of course. We're just more tired now. We've got nothing even half holy to offer you. But in our weariness, we rest in the promise that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, as Paul says, and that we'll get to the other side of this day, this week, this year. So come to us, Holy One, abide with us, and please grant us your peace. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. As you heard in today's welcome, this is the second Sunday of Lent. 
And we are leaning into the Linton refrain again and again to sharpen our focus during these six weeks. This week, the theme is that again and again, we are called to listen. So obviously it makes complete sense that the scripture lesson is a story about someone who has not been listening. That's the story we just heard, right? Peter has not been listening to Jesus. As the text says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected and killed. He said all these things quite openly. In other words, Jesus was not playing hide the ball here. Peter just didn't like the message, which calls to mind the Mark Twain quote, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Jesus warned the disciples that the road ahead would not be an easy one. This would, indeed, have been difficult for them to hear. It would have been easy to shut down. And remember, at this point, despite what Jesus had just said to them, the disciples are still under the illusion that Jesus is going to style himself after the revolutionaries that came before, using a sword and a shield to liberate his people and then establish a new empire, one that operated much like the Roman Empire, but with the disciples in charge. So when Jesus explicitly said that this was not the plan, Peter did not want to hear it. It made him cranky. And while one might think that perhaps this is a setup to a story that models better listening on Peter's part so that we can follow it, that this story leads into the next one in which Peter does listen, does hear what Jesus is saying, well, that is not the case. We heard the next story very recently, just a few weeks ago, the story of Jesus' transfiguration, a sight which may have been more in line with Peter's messianic imagination. But in that story, it is obvious he still did not accept that being the anointed one wasn't about grandeur or pomp or being crowned king. Instead of listening to the conversation between Jesus and Elijah and Moses, Peter interrupted with a suggestion to build dwellings for the three prophets. This is what was done for deity, and Peter had big ideas about what was next for Jesus. This pattern repeats itself several more times by the time we get to the end of the gospel. Later in chapter 9, the disciples argue about who is the greatest, and this fight, too, came after Jesus had just finished a similar teaching about the difficult path ahead. It was as if the disciples had stuck their fingers in, the ear, in their ears. La, 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 we can't hear you, Jesus. No listening. We would like to think that we would have done it differently. We would have had our listening ears turned on, as my three-year-old niece would say. Maybe, but probably not. As Reverend Denise Anderson observes, hard truths trouble the waters of our understanding and challenge our notions of what is real. For Peter, hearing Jesus foretell his agonizing death prompted him to try to quiet Jesus. And then he continued to struggle accepting 
the truth. When we hear something unsettling, this is often how we react to, we shut down, we stop listening, we refuse to hear. And our first response, like Peter's in this story, is to try to argue with and silence those who are trying to tell us something that doesn't fit with the narrative we have in our head. This story comes halfway through the Gospel of Mark. Peter had been with Jesus for a while now. He had seen some things, healing, experiences described as miracles, the calming of hearts and minds, storms and tempers. And maybe this was exactly why it was so hard for him to hear what Jesus had to say about how all this was going to end. Everything was going so smoothly. And then, bam, the news that all of this openness and inclusion, all of this turning the other cheek and going the extra mile was not going to lead to a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but rather that even more difficult work was ahead, work that would require deeper commitment and sacrifice. And this was highly disappointing. Peter wanted to tap the brakes. He only wanted to go so far, just up to the point of discomfort, no farther than where he would have to change. I suggest to you that this may be the best evidence that Peter is the progressive church's early forerunner. We progressives always seem to be a bit surprised when we hear that we have room for improvement, that we're going to have to dig a little deeper. This is always the point when someone tells me that conservatives need to hear this more than we do, and that's where I need to be aiming. But y'all, they're not my audience. It's my job to make sure we come correct. So I'm going to tell you another story, a story that doesn't have a nice, neat ending, in part because it's still being written, but it's a story that shows us how we might move past our first responses of resistance and the impulse to silence those who do, ha do not have a message we want to hear. In her book, Untamed, author Glennon Doyle, who is a white woman, writes about her experience in anti-racism work. She says, I was asked to participate in an activist group led by women of color. One of the black leaders tasked another white woman and me with the job of planning an online webinar for other white women with the intention of calling them into the work of racial justice. Our mission was twofold, begin educating other white women and solicit donations to fund bail and respite for black activists putting themselves on the line day after day. The other white woman and I accepted the job. On our planning calls for the webinar, we decided that she would focus on the history of complicity of white women and I would focus on my personal experience as a white woman waking up to her place inside of white supremacy. I thought that if I explained to white women that the confusion, shame, and fear they would experience in their early days of racial sobriety were predictable parts of the process of unbecoming, they would be more likely to remain in the anti-racism effort. Also, they'd be better equipped to confront their racism privately 
instead of mistakenly believing that their feelings should be shared publicly. This felt important because black leaders were telling me that the ignorance and emotionality of well-intentioned white women was a major stumbling block towards justice. I knew what they meant. I'd seen it happen again and again. If white women don't learn that our experiences in early racial sobriety are predictable, we think our reactions are unique. So we enter race conversations far too early and we lead with our feelings and confusions and opinions. And when we do this, we are centering ourselves so that we inevitably put, get put back where we belong, which is far from the center. This makes us even more agitated. We are used to people showing gratitude for our presence. So being unappreciated hurts our feelings. We double down. We say things like, at least I'm trying. No one is even grateful. All I do is get attacked. People become upset because saying, I am being attacked, doesn't accurately describe what is happening. People are just telling us the truth for the first time. That truth feels like an attack because we have been protected by comfortable lies for so long. We are dumbfounded. We feel like we are always saying the wrong things and that people are always getting upset about that. But I do not think people become upset just because we say the wrong things. I think people are upset and we are defensive, hurt, and frustrated because we have fallen into the trap of believing that becoming racially sober is about saying the right thing instead of becoming the right thing. That showing up is based in performing instead of transforming. The way we show up reveals that we haven't yet done the studying and listening required to become the right thing before trying to say the right thing. We are mugs filled to the brim and we keep getting bumped. If we are filled with coffee, coffee will spill out. If we are filled with tea, tea will spill out. Getting bumped is inevitable. If we want to change what spills out of us, we have to work to change what's inside of us. How do I enter the race conversation is the wrong question in the early days of racial sobriety. We are not talking about a conversation to enter publicly as much as a, uh, as much as a conversion to surrender to privately. Whether we are in it to perform or transform becomes evident by the way we take up space. When a white woman who is unbecoming does show up publicly, she does so with humble respect, which is a way of being that is quiet, steady, and yielding, not with hand-wringing shame, because self-flagellation is just another way to demand attention. She has feelings, but she interrogates them within instead of imposing them on others, because there is a deep understanding that how she feels is irrelevant when people are dying. I planned to share all of this on the webinar. My hope was that it might prepare participants for the early stages of racial sobriety and that this preparation might serve the larger social justice efforts of our activist group. We sent the plans for our webinar out to the leaders of our group for feedback and approval. We made their suggested adjustments, then posted online about the seminar. 
thousands registered, I went to bed. The next morning, though, I woke up to a text from a friend that said, Glennon, just checking on you. I'm watching what's going down online. Let me know that you're okay. My heart sank as I opened up Instagram. There were hundreds, eventually thousands of comments, many of them from people calling me a racist. What I didn't know back then is that there are several valid and contradictory schools of thought about how white women should show up in racial justice movement. One view, white women, when accountable to and led by women of color, should use our voices and platforms to call other white women into anti-racism work. Another view, white women should only use their voices to point to people of color already doing the work. Those who subscribed to the latter philosophy were furious with me about this webinar. Why would you try to teach instead of pointing toward women of color who are already doing this work? Why would you take up space in this movement when so many women of color have been doing this work forever? You offering a free course is taking money out of black educators' pockets. Offering a safe space for white women to talk about race is wrong. White women don't need to be safe, they need to be educated. You are canceled. You are a racist. You are a racist, Glennon. You are nothing but a racist. Everywhere, the word racist. I was stunned. I am not new to criticism, Glennon continues. I am a woman who announced her engagement to another woman during a countrywide Christian speaking tour. I have been publicly ridiculed by and excommunicated from entire religious denominations. I'm used to the other side hating me. I wear that kind of backlash as a badge of honor. But Friendly Fire was new and excruciating. I felt idiotic and remorseful. I also felt terribly jealous of every single person who had decided to sit this one out. I thought of the quote, it is better to be quiet and thought a fool than to open your mouth and prove it. I felt defensive, hurt, frustrated, and afraid. I could not think of a single thing I was more terrified of than being called a racist. This was rock bottom. Luckily, I am a woman who has learned repeatedly that while rock bottom feels like the end, it's always the beginning of something. I knew that this was the moment I'd either relapse with a couple shots of self-pity and resignation, or I'd double down on my racial sobriety and carry on. I told myself, breathe, don't panic and flee, Feel it all. Be still. Imagine. In other words, instead of trying to silence those who brought her a hard message, Glennon decided to listen. She continues. In America, there are not two kinds of people, racists and non-racists. There are three kinds of people those poisoned by racism and actively choosing to spread it, those poisoned by racism and actively trying to detox, and those poisoned by racism who deny its very existence inside them. 
I've decided that the people who called me a racist were right and wrong. I am the second type of person. I am a white woman who has come to the conclusion that the reason people call me a racist when I show up to speak about racism is that I am showing up as I am and I have racism in me by what I say and don't say, by the way I say it, people can see my inner racism on the outside. What they are seeing and pointing out is the truth. Every white person who shows up and tells the truth, because it's her duty as a member of our human family, is going to have her racism called out. She will have to accept that others will disagree with how she's showing up and that they will have every right to disagree. She will need to learn to withstand people's anger, knowing that much of it is real and true and necessary. She will need to accept that one of the privileges she's letting burn is her emotional comfort. She will need to remind herself that being called a racist is actually not the worst thing. The worst thing is privately hiding her racism to stay safe, liked, and comfortable while others suffer and die. Dr. Maya Angelou reminds us, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Doing our best now is an active thing, and so is knowing better. We don't show up and then wait to magically know better. We show up and then, when we are corrected, we keep working. We listen hard so we can know better next time. We seek out teachers so we can know better next time. We let burn our ideas about how good and well-meaning we are so we can become better next time. So having heard a new story, our Lenten homework now is to lean in to listen when we hear something unsettling, not to get defensive or be in denial. Instead of getting cranky, let's get curious. Don't panic. Don't try to silence anyone. Be still. Imagine. Ask more questions. Listen deeply. Curious, not cranky. Let's try it. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only, premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.